the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a ghostly Thanksgiving turkey served with tangy phantasmagorum sauce and sprinkled with ground revenant. Sumerian linguistic axes to grind against Hittite stones of conjugation. As we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of a two-part interview with two-time World Fantasy Award winner Tim Powers. Tim talks with us about his new short story collection, which brings together all of his shorter fiction, every last published power story so far. That book is called Down and Out in Purgatory, The Collected Stories of Tim Powers, and is now out from Bain at Booksellers Everywhere. We'll talk with Tim about all of that wonderful weirdness, and we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals, the Leaden novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Speaking of Tim Powers, this month's Bain.com contest is a fun Thanksgiving and holidays related one, and the winner will receive a signed copy of Tim Powers' great short story collection, Down and Out in Purgatory. In the new short story, which was out at Bain.com and is the final story in Down and Out in Purgatory, Sufficient Unto the Day, that one's called, Tim Powers treats us to a Thanksgiving meal unlike any other, which got us thinking, what famous family from science fiction or fantasy would you like to join for a traditional holiday meal, and why? What we like here is about 100 words from you detailing what science fiction family or group you would find it cool or weird or strange to spend Thanksgiving with. Send your entry to contest at Bain.com. That's the email, contest at Bain.com. No later than November 20th. Uh, put November contest in the subject field, and please remember to include your name. These will be judged, and if we get some cool ones, we'll publish them as well. So that will be fun. Enter the contest now. This is part one of a two-part interview with Tim Powers, talking about his new book, Down and Out in Purgatory, The Collected Stories of Tim Powers. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Tim Powers to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Hello, glad to be here. Uh, Tim Powers won the World Fantasy Award twice for his critically acclaimed novels, Last Call and Declare. Declare also received the International Horror Guild Award. His novel on Stranger Tides was used for the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean installment um, on Stranger Tides. Strangely enough, um, that's the title, too, which is a great title. His book, The Anubis Gates, won the Philip K. Dick Award and is considered a modern science fiction classic by me and many others. Great book. Tim won the P.K. Dick Award again for Dinner at Deviant's Palace, another book I really like. Many of the novels, such as Expiration Date, Earthquake, Weather, and, and Tim's new book, Alternate Routes, all of them are coming out from Bain Books next summer um, and fall. 
And often uh, what Tim will do is use historical events in which supernatural and metaphysical elements influence the story in weird and uh, compelling manner. Um, Tim grew up in Southern California where he still resides with his wife, Serena. Tim is also a wonderful award-winning short story writer, as one might expect, and out now at booksellers everywhere is Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers. These are them, all of Tim's short fiction in one uh, in one place. Well, all of it that Tim wanted us to collect, which is... <laughs> it was everything. Which is, yeah, uh, including uh, a new story that's never appeared anywhere else except uh, at Bain.com, Sufficient Unto the Day, um, which, is, which is just out. Tim, what I didn't mention in the bio just now is 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 your background um, is all of your background. You were friends with Phil Dick, and you've really been part of an extraordinary literary circle out in out in the L.A. area. Um, can you tell us about a little bit? I mean, it's because it's fascinating to me anyway. I'd like to hear it again about your early days as a as a writer. Well, yeah, I uh, always wanted to be a writer, um, and specifically a science fiction fantasy writer ever since I stumbled across Heinlein when I was 11. And I started getting rejection slips when I was 15 when fantasy and science fiction ran an editorial on how to submit stories. And I was very pleased to get a rejection slip because it sort of was acknowledgement from the real world, even if that acknowledgement was no thank you. Uh, but I thought Hemingway got these. This is great. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, uh, Philip K. Dick um, flew down to Southern California kind of in flight from all the crises and catastrophes of his life up to that time. And uh, I met him then and also met K.W. Jeter and Jim Blaylock at about the same time. And Jeter and Blaylock and I were all writing stories and sending them out and getting them rejected and uh, trying to write novels and actually finish writing novels. And um, Phil Dick was always sort of cheerfully observing it all. I know we'd sometimes... We'd say, oh, hell, I, I, I got a rejection from Ace Books or Del Rey, and Phil would say, it's just as well. There's too many books in the world already. Um, and then Jeter managed to uh, sell a book to a line that was around briefly in the 1970s called Laser Books. Oh, yeah, I remember those when I was a kid. I was reading them. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a perfect line because they had no backlist. They paid terribly. <laughs> um, and they had an insanely precise length requirement. Um, and because of all this, there was not a lot of competition from more established writers. Uh, their, their length requirement was that every book must work out to be exactly 192 pages. Um, because if it was 194 pages, they wouldn't be able to sh close the shipping cartons. <laughs> um, yeah. It was 190 pages. Well, it was probably the signature uh, divisible by 16 thing. Yeah, and uh, and uh, little by little, uh, Blaylock and Jeter and I did manage to begin to get books published. 
And uh, Phil Dick was a help with each of us at least once each. Uh, we were always kind of shy about showing him things we'd written, you know, uh, because he was a genuine big-name pro and we were little sandlot kids. Um, but he, uh, Phil Dick was instrumental in getting Jeter's book, Dr. Adder, published, even though it was a very controversial book. And when Laser Books collapsed and I had to go back to my job working in a pizza parlor, uh, Phil wrote a very very good letter to his agent saying, I think you should take Powers on. They didn't that time, but uh, later on I did wind up with that agency. And so altogether, it was um, valuable for Jeter and Blaylock and I to have this living example, which was our neighbor, of a real science fiction writer. Uh, It kind of cured us of any notions we might have had that published writers are wealthy, for one thing. (laughs) That you were going to be living in a mansion soon. Right, right, exactly, because this was a time when Phil Dick was particularly down on his luck. Uh, four ex-wives, soon to be five ex-wives. Um, and it wasn't until probably about 1980 that the Blade Runner project became real. And he actually, luckily in the last couple of years of his life, he did have more money than he knew what to do with. Yeah. Mostly he gave it away. <laughs> well, one gets the idea that even today, if he'd lived, <laughs> he might still be down and out. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, even uh, even with all the movies that well, have been made of his He was uncomfortable having money. Yeah. Grew up in Berkeley in the 50s, and he had this sort of idea that only villains had appreciable amounts of money. Ought to be a villain. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I now I remember um, when I was starting out reading some interviews with you because this was when you and Blaylock and and Jeter and some others were were the vanguard, the Young Turks. Um, right, I remember reading interviews with you guys and think, man, I want to, I want to be those guys one day. So I guess the uh, the chain continues somehow. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting now being uh, one of the old guys in the field. Well, I'm not that young either. So. But that's true. You've been you've been cranking along right alongside us. So yeah, we are both the old guys in the field now. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about Down and Out in Purgatory. Um, this includes 20 short stories. Um, I'd love to talk about a few of them. Now, you've written, how many novels do you, I don't know if you've kept a count. Uh, Fourteen to date. Yeah. Uh, so, so you've actually written more stories than novels, even though yeah. you don't crank out that many uh, stories. Um, but when you do, they're usually doozies. Um, there's there's nothing weak in this whole collection that, that, um, that I can see. Um, Maybe we should just talk about a few of them instead of trying to, uh, you know, survey it or anything. Um, how about Salvage, Salvage and Demolition, which is um, this excellent time-traveling piece at the beginning. It's the opening story with a sort of 
Lovecraft angle to it, I think. Um, a cult of very dangerous ninnies seeking immortality have been uh, trying to translate this ancient Sumerian manuscript that uh, that will, of course, introduce unspeakable evil into the world if they get it done. Um, and they've recruited a woman who is a Sumerian scholar. Um, and uh, allegedly, she there's a dialect of there's an esoteric dialect of Sumerian that only women speak um, in your story. And it's like this is like the the perfect uh like weird bundle of things that starts a Tim Powers story and then then you make it into an adventure tale. Can you tell us a little bit about um I don't know, is there actually a, a weird dialect to Sumerian or did you just make that up? Well there really is. Uh they really did have a woman's dialect, um, whether it was for spoken speech or just for writing, of course. Nobody knows. Um, but it did appeal to me that um, scholars really do seem to think uh, it's it's uh, a different, presumably particularly female, uh, cadence or subtext in the passages of women's dialect. And therefore it occurred to me that if you had a sort of Necronomicon style old Sumerian text that would be dangerous to translate. Uh, to get it right, you really ought to have a woman who happens to be a Sumerian scholar. And so I was able to um, throw her into the mix. Uh, and, and it was a perfect sort of, as I say, Necronomicon-ish package to, you know, uh, to have the kind of forbidden text in. And you have the, you have two sort of levels of, of time travel here because she's in 1957. Um, and your main character, our main character, our, our, uh, viewpoint character, he's from 2012 or so. Um, so the, somehow a, there's a uh, there's a there's several ripples in time here that uh, that are going to lead to um some some weirdnesses um what is how do you research something like this uh, how do you dis how does it come about that you that you that you say all right i i mean you you have this lovecraftian uh, influence i'm sure you've you love lovecraft cuz i've seen you i uh, live on lovecraft yeah so you got that like just you know pulsing in your veins but this all right so you, do you decide to um do the research on the on the the weird magic do you have a character come to your mind uh, how did this story come about do you remember yeah usually what happens uh is that i find a situation or event something in the real world that looks likely to be a gateway to weird stuff if you happen to be looking for weird stuff. And uh, for that one, I was um, reading deeply about the beat poets, and uh, I happened to stumble across the Sumerian business, and uh, I've always been fascinated with rare books and collecting and manuscripts and all that, and uh, it just seemed logical. Ha! to um, 
to say that there could be a link between an old manuscript found today and the time when it was written. Because it always seems if you're touching an old manuscript or letter or signed book that you're kind of, in a sense, establishing a bit of a link between now and the moment when that ink was put onto the paper decades ago. And, uh, yeah, given my Lovecraftian bent, um, I thought, well, obviously there must be uh, something ominous, something dangerous in uh, an old Sumerian text, which a poet in the 1950s was translating. And uh, and uh, since we're considering the person here and now having to do with the manuscript, obviously time travel's involved. And then I thought, if a guy goes back in time twice to the same day, back in 1957, who says they have to be sequential visits? He could uh, make his first visit at 5 p.m. and interact with people, and then come back to now and make his second visit at maybe noon on that day. So that he would be meeting people he's already acquainted with from his previous visit who have never met him before, and vice versa on his 5 p.m. visit. So and going back in time and meeting someone who already knows you, is that's, right. that's the cool moment in the story as well. Yeah, yeah it all, um, I think, all time travel stories since about 1950 derive from Robert Heinlein's story off by his bootstraps. Mm -hmm. uh, he first introduced the idea of uh, tangling the thread a bit as opposed to just Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court where it's pretty much just a straight line. Did you... Um... So you personally wanted to go back to City Lights bookstore and listen to the Beats read. So you decided you found a way to go back to Fifty Seven. Yeah, <laughs> there is um, something almost seems unjust that, uh, as Faulkner said, the past isn't dead; it isn't even past. Um, if, from our chronological perspective, we can't see all the people and places that we have, you know, moved beyond. But it seems arrogantly chronocentric uh, to assume that they've stopped existing just because we can't see them anymore from here. Um, it seems uh, almost logical that the people and places that once existed still do out there. Just because we can't see them from our curve of the road doesn't mean the road behind us evaporates as soon as we've passed it. Yeah, this, I mean, there's a there's a lot of this in your stories where where objects retain a, a certain qual a spiritual quality, even um, um, a connection with where they're from. Um, sometimes they're even inhabited by ghosts. Um, well, often, yeah. <laughs> but you're. Uh, this idea that that the quotidian world with the with the is is just part of a larger reality seems to 
just be uh, throughout your work something that you you can look. You know, a normal person would see a freeway. You see a, a you know, an amalgamation of the ghost of all the cars that have gone that way, or something like that. Yeah, um, time really is. Um, not to sound crazy here, but uh, at least from fictional perspective, from an imaginative imaginative perspective, time really is different on freeways. Um, you, you get on them through a special on-ramp, and then you're in this particular freeway world for a while, and when you get off, um, you're getting off in a time different from if you had taken the if you had gone from a to b by way of surface streets um so it seems sort of obvious that time works differently on freeways and and why do they call them surface streets it implies shallow um and therefore freeways must be deeper streets (laughs) well uh we're going to learn a lot more about that when Alternate Routes comes out next summer. Um, oh, true. <laughs> which is a, a lot of fun, and we're really looking forward to that, which is going to be Tim's new novel, uh, which we are, are bringing out in August. But back to the stories. Um, in your author's note, um, you, you, we talked about this a little bit on uh, Salvage and Demolition just now. Was You talked about the Faulkner quote. Um also, you mentioned you bring up Gerard Manley Hopkins. This sort of um, this sort of feeling of um, the past is closed to us, but we want so much. You know, we're kind of mourning, and we want to uh, to reach back to it. Um, yeah, it is the past. Man was it is the fate man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. Yeah, the little Margaret that used to be. It's a uh, a young girl seeing uh, what autumn leaves. And, and thinking. Yeah. yeah, it probably doesn't occur to non-sentient creatures, dogs and cats, but um, with our elevated perspective, it seems unnatural that we are strapped down on the conveyor belt of chronological linear time. Uh, it, it seems like a restriction we should be able to break free of. Yeah, it's not fair. Well, uh, the Bible Repair Man, uh, another story, a great story in this collection, um, is a different kind of story. It's got action in it, but it's it's mostly about this wonderfully drawn character um, who has sort of come to the end of his career and his life. Um, and he's he's kind of a, I mean, he's a blue-collar guy. <laughs> At best. Um, how the heck can somebody repair a Bible? Well, uh, certainly the Bible for anybody, has a lot of inconvenient passages. Uh, And if you were selfish and egocentric enough, you'd say, well, obviously it's defective. Obviously, if it was corrected, it would um, conform to the way I wish it would be, and therefore the Bible as it is is defective. And everybody would have different passages they object to, um, God knows what, uh, divorce, sex, etc. And so everybody would have uh, different customizations they'd want done uh, to make it more the way they think it ought to be. And so I had my character uh, elaborately, ritualistically um, 
burn out the phrases in the Bible for each different customer, the phrases that that customer objected to. And then he would uh, douse the thing in holy water to sort of uh, set the changes. And then the customer could go away happily with a, a, from his perspective, corrected Bible. This is a world where that that kind of works, at least for the time being, for the yeah, it, it 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 certainly satisfies the customers. And then, of course, he runs into bigger troubles. Yeah. Well, there's a this world where there's ghosts, um, and these are Tim Powers ghosts, which are um, you vary it a little bit in the way that that you depict them, but um, you, it's similar to the way you do it in Stranger Tides, um, and the way you do it in alternate routes. You have this sort of motif that ghosts are not really souls but that they're they're kind of resonances or something can you elaborate on that yeah um i think i got it originally from reading somewhere in chesterton uh he said if the ghost of your uncle george is haunting you your uncle george doesn't know anything about it he has gone somewhere else the ghost that's hassling you is just sort of a animate semi-sentient fragment of a person uh, left behind when the actual person, actual soul, went on to some eternal destination. So I figure if something as primitive as, say, a snake casts off a skin which just lies there, something as monumental as a human being would cast off a thing which wouldn't just lie there would sort of have memories and uh, be not exactly intelligent, but kind of remember having been intelligent. And so the ghosts tend to be uh, half IQ, uh, repeating old actions and motivations, and... um, troublesome, but you can't really reason with them. Uh, And in a way, this is borne out by when you read spiritualist accounts of, like, seances or or Ouija board sessions, the ghosts always seem really dumb. In fact, a while ago, I saw a book of um, sonnets by Percy Shelley, which he had dictated through a medium, and he had just lost all his skill. Well, dang it. <laughs> I wonder if she uh if she got it down right though, really. I don't It would be troubling. It would maybe be it troubling. Was, maybe it was the uh the, the Shelly never mind. We won't get into the different the bad and the good Shelly. All right. <laughs> so. Would be troubling to um be confronted with the ghost, for example, of someone you had loved, because it's not that person. Yeah. Well, this is the, this is the, you know, this is the crux of the Bible repair man. Um, and, and the ghost is still is, that person is the child, which is the worst possible thing I can imagine happening is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to put my characters in, uh, uncomfortable situations. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he has to choose between saving a living child or, Saving the ghost of his daughter, which, of course, isn't really his daughter, but it seems to be, in many ways, his daughter. 
Yeah, it, it, uh, it's talking to her like talking to him like it's his daughter, and it's asking him for things in a pleading way. It just—I uh, I can only imagine the kind of the heartrending. Yes. You know, if if I don't even want to think about it, my daughter, my daughter will far outlive me, and I'm going to be screaming at her from the afterlife. Ah, that's yeah. the plan. <laughs> well, you know, that's the virtue of both science fiction and fantasy is they let you put characters into sorts of stressful situations that reality doesn't permit. I mean, in the real world, you could never have, in mainstream fiction, you could never have a character confronted with that awful choice. Yeah. What do you think it gets us to be able to do that? What do I think it what? Gets us as as readers. That... Um, we, well, it's the difference between impossible and inconceivable. Um, there's a lot of impossible things that we can conceive of, uh, and react to and get emotionally tied up with. And it's always seemed like an artificial restriction in mainstream fiction that you have to stick with stuff that could really happen. And you can't use stuff which can't happen, but is, you know, imaginable. Um, so yeah, I think the I think the audience of science fiction, fantasy, and people in general really um, can participate vicariously in situations which actual plain old outside the front door reality can't provide. Yeah, and. Uh... It allows you to think in in ways, um, in, in, to exercise your imagination in pathways, perhaps that. Um... Yeah, to to um, stretch beyond the mundane facts of the car won't start, the dog ate the mail, uh, relatively local phenomena. It lets you uh, picture, confront, uh, sort of honorarily deal with situations which in fact won't ever arise um, I mean I, I love science fiction because I get to walk on the moon uh, vicariously in a Heinlein story or I get to walk through a an Escher landscape or even a Hieronymus Bosch landscape uh, which are adventurous and surprising um, as in the real world, I never would be able to. How much of, um, this is a kind of a process question, which you may not want to answer because writers need their secrets, but like how much of the, the world do you experience that way? And, um, and while you're constructing this stuff, I mean, you must be thinking in terms of craft and, and such to, to get this magical world across, so you're not in that that sort of state that the characters are in, but um, how much of of your own imaginative world that you inhabit um, do you pump into the, these stories? Well, um, I find I always have a reflex uh, in the first moments of something puzzling happening. I always have a reflex to think that the supernatural has occurred. 
I mean, I get better. Uh, a moment later, I'm rational again. But um, I mentioned in the afterword of one of the stories how I was once taking a pair of binoculars apart and found what's called a poro lens inside. And if you look through the lens and rotate it uh, one quarter turn, the image inside turns completely upside down, which is illogical. And my first thought was, I'm twisting reality here. And so I made sure to twist it back to normal again because I didn't want to kink the fabric of space. Very often something odd will happen and I think, uh-oh, uh, this is this is something magical going on. And then a moment later, I think, no powers. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's something rational. I find, in fact, that even though, as you say, I'm thinking craft and construction when I'm putting a story together, and I come up with a supernatural explanation for some historical event, um, as I'm doing my research, always toward the end, it seems, I find some fresh research source, some book, and it will appear to con uh, confirm my supernatural theory. And I'll think, oh my God, Thomas Edison really was talking to ghosts, or Lord Byron really was confronting vampires. You haven't been making this up, Powers. You've stumbled on the real story. Yeah. Or this—this this yeah. is always late at night, and then I go to bed, and I'm okay in the morning. Yeah. That was part one of a two-part interview with Tim Powers. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship Dutiful Passage is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 16 Terrigan Jemmy Atha's Jumble Stop, Birth 12 
Inky arrived as Tokel was keying in that second call to the Admiral, three station hours down the timeline. Haz must have briefed her on the situation, because she did not speak, only moved quietly to the observer's chair and sat down. Haz crossed her arms on the back of the co-pilot's chair, apparently content to lean there, and Tokol spoke. Admiral, this is Tokol Lorlin aboard Terrigan, calling you back in three hours as you specified. May we resume our discussion now? Tokol Lorlin, I have reviewed the information provided by our mutual friend. I have reviewed the data for Mentor Jones, Mentor Yo, and Pilot Norfelium. I have performed research. I have performed self-tests insofar as I am able. I would speak to Mentor Jones if he is available. From the side of his eye, Tolly saw Inky lean forward, chin propped on hand, gaze intent on the board like she could see through it, and hard vacuum to the Admiral himself. The Admiral's voice was considerably stronger, Tolly thought, and he sounded sharper, more awake. Might have been that the self-tests had tightened up some of the protocols, even zipped those least used. That would speed up processing time for those protocols still in use and gain him a little room to think in. Tokol assigned calm to him. He touched the switch and leaned forward. Tolly Jones here, Admiral. Good to talk to you again. There was a pause, as if the pleasantry had puzzled the admiral, or as if he had no use for small talk. Which he probably didn't, set out here in the back end of nowhere at all, with only himself and occasionally Stu to talk to. You wanted to tour my... self, the admiral said now. I will allow. Only the packet boat holds air. Perhaps not enough air. You must wear a vacuum suit. It was ambiguous, maybe, but Tolly decided to believe that the AI had expressed concern for human welfare and was therefore encouraged. Happens I've got a vacuum suit, he said cheerfully. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to bring Tokol with me. Why? asked the admiral. For a couple reasons. One reason's that she's got skills that'll move the assessment process along much faster than if I'm just working by myself. Also, this was tricky, the pilot being what she was, and no private band was ever truly and completely private. Lying was out of the question, and given the lack of understanding of nuance, even misdirection was risky. Vagueness was best. Also, he said again, I think she might be able to assist you in learning. You are the teacher, the mentor. That's right, I am. But just like Haz can teach me all kinds of stuff, even though she's not officially a teacher, so can Tokol teach us both 
I think you'll profit by her presence, and I will. Admiral Bunter might know that there were other people like him in the universe, though Tolly's money was on didn't. He wouldn't have met anyone of his sort, though, no matter that he'd been made by an AI. Captain Waitley hadn't exactly advertised the condition of her ship. The ship itself wouldn't have offered the information either, even in private. Both Captain Waitley and her ship had considered Admiral Bunter expendable. Hadn't, maybe, expected him to survive beyond the confrontation he'd been brought to life to resolve. Cold-hearted, that's what that was, not to mention addle-pated and extravagant. AI modules didn't exactly grow on trees. I will, Admiral Bunter said slowly, allow Tokol Lorlin to accompany you. The lesser, the assistant mentor, and the pilot guard will remain at station. Two is enough to board me. My environments are not stable. Well now, the admiral had apparently taken thought for the limitations of organics twice in a row. Surely that was heartening. We understand that you are at risk, Tolly said into the comm. Tokel and I guarantee our own safety. Yes. Now that's settled, when can we come aboard? Mentor Tolly Jones and Tokel Lorlin may board the packet boat in four station hours. That gave them a little time to get the suit and the tools together and to pick up the repair skiff Stu had reluctantly put at their disposal. We'll be wanting to board all seven of your vessels, Tolly reminded gently. We'll be glad to start on the packet boat, though. There was a small hesitation. Then, yes. Good. See you soon. Tolly Jones out. He ended the call and leaned back in his seat, letting his breath go in an explosive sigh. He has not been taught the niceties, Inky observed from her seat. Not been taught anything. He tried to spin his chair to face her, found it impeded, and then moving free as Haz straightened out of her lean. Inky shook her head. Surely it is not necessary, mentor, pilot, to endanger yourselves by physically visiting each of those derelicts. An assessment can be performed from this ship, or, if you prefer, Ahab Azaeus might do the work. Tokol turned to face her. In fact, we have already pulled what information we need. The purpose of physically entering at least one of those ships is so the Admiral may see me and know that he is not alone. It is, perhaps, not as useful as it might be, but my contact was adamant that the Admiral be shown that he is not the only one of his kind in existence. Knowing that there are others may give him strength for the transfer, Inky said, but Tolly heard a thread of doubt in her voice. I promised the pilot I'd try, he said. Of course we must try, 
Inky cried. Whether or not Captain Waitley had expected him to continue after the resolution of the crisis for which he was wakened, he has persevered. He guards and keeps what faith he may. That is admirable. We must, of a certainty, try. She took a hard breath and leaned back in the observer's chair. Forgive me. My emotions run warm on this. Your vehemence does you credit, Tokol said gently. You are kind, Inky told her, and looked again to Tolly. Returning to our topic, mentor, I have a list of three vessels which may possibly accommodate our poor ghost. If you will accept my judgment, I will inspect them and choose the most likely, while you and Tokol visit Admiral Bunter. I will also handle stew. She paused and asked delicately, I assume, knowing the nature of the problem, you have brought with you a cranium? We are prepared in that way, Tokol assured her. In fact, Tolly knew there were three sustainable environments, craniums in working mentor speak, in Terrigan's hold, that being Tokol's idea of conservative. I'll gladly leave the choice of ship to you, he told Inky. You know what's needed as well as I do, and here's my thinking. Has said the admiral's taken a bad wound after we talked to him the first time, and it's my belief she's right. I know Stu's idea is to get him trained or shut down as is. I'm guessing that's the handling, an aside to Inky, who gave him a slight, seated bow. We have had one discussion regarding the need for an appropriate environment. Stu is not overawed by the complex logic laws, but he holds the station's safety high. As he should, said Haz. Indeed, it is his natural concern, but he has allowed his concern to blind him to the possibility of a future in which, educated and occupying a fitting environment, Admiral Bunter stands as the true champion of the station and its regulars. You think he's convinced? Tolly asked. He will be by the end of our second conversation, Inky said, and Tolly nodded. It's yours then, Tolly said. My first order of business is to move the Admiral, if he can be moved. I was thinking to do some training first, by way of bringing Stu on board with us, but we can't afford the time. The Admiral was sounding a lot perkier just now than the first time we talked to him, but he'd taken a break to run some self-tests. He turned to Tokel. That was your idea, was it? It was in the file, yes. Good call, he said. He got through this little talk without getting winded or confused. So what we want to do is move him while he's got reserves. He paused and shook his head. Once we get him moved to the cranium and installed in an operating environment, then we'll be in for a cram course with an overload of ethics. If he's going to be the law out here, he's going to have to have a solid grounding. I agree, said Inky, and I am uniquely placed to assist with that course. 
You will have seen in my file that I only recently mentored a judge. I did see that, and I'll be real happy to have your help. First, though, he's got to live through the move. Is my new body a pilot? Aliana asked, her voice stringently calm. Dulcie, who had only just finished a tutorial on the regimen of exercises required to fine-tune newborn muscles, sighed, gray eyes serious. It may be so, she said slowly. We did what we could to incline the body in that direction. We will not know for certain until you engage with the exercise program. As we discussed, you will at first be doing basic toning, balance, and endurance exercises. The machines will monitor and challenge you, but it will be some time until you attain the challenge level required for a pilot. So I must work hard. Dulcie smiled. I feel the same every time I wake anew, she said. I wish to push the protocol until it is I challenging the machine. It is the time I begrudge, not the work. But the machines are too wily for us, pilot. They also measure our rest periods and do not allow double-ups or accelerations. In this process, rest is as important as work. Of course, Aliana murmured. Dulcie considered her for a long moment before including Dov in her nod. As you saw, your quarters are stocked with appropriate foods and drinks, she said. On your return, I would advise you to eat a small meal before you nap. When you wake, another light meal, after which you may attempt the first set of exercises. You, of course, will be monitoring us as well he suggested. Her smile widened, Terran-friendly. You are our guests. Of course, we wish to be assured that you are safe and in no distress. The procedure you have undergone is not trivial. It is far too easy for the newly reborn to overreach. We honor your privacy, however. The ship observes you and alerts us only if there is need for intervention. I understand, Dov murmured. We thank you, Aliana added, for your care. Dulcie inclined her head and escorted them from the exercise room to the door of their quarters, where she left them with a bow and a reminder again to eat and nap. In the usual way of things, Tali didn't favor working in a suit. Body language and kinesics were useful communication tools, and a vacuum suit masked all the little details of muscle tension, stance, and facial expression. Suits were so stiff that they discouraged even usual body habits. Who wanted to cross their arms over their chest while they were wearing a vacuum suit? Not Tolly Jones. On the other hand, nobody was paying much attention to him just at present. Tokol Lorlin, 
the admiral said, sounding cranky. I was told that one would come who was like me. If you are that one, you are not like me. I am like you, Tokol said in her unflappable way. I am a self-aware, independent intelligence. There was a long silence. I am a self-aware intelligence spread among 13 inadequate processing facilities installed in seven increasingly unstable environments. I am in disorder. I am a, a pod of junk. I am a hazard to navigation. Those last, Tolly thought, showed what came of listening at doors or calm traffic between station and incoming. You, Tokol Lorlin, there was hesitation there. Tolly waited with active interest, wondering how far developed the Admiral's aesthetic sense was. You are orderly. You are maintained. You are, you are clean. Nothing so glib as beautiful, though Pilot Tokel was every bit of that. Heartfelt, though. No one who heard him could doubt it. Clean, huh? I had the advantage of a proper awakening, into an environment built to accommodate me. You were wakened in answer to a single emergency. You preserved the station and all its residents. The station, in return, owes you a stable environment and an education. Tokol pivoted, ostensibly to survey the packet boat's compact bridge. She paused as Tolly came in front of her faceplate and swayed into one of her elegant bows. Captain Waitley placed a call to our mutual friend, asking that a teacher be brought to you. In this, she acted with honor and with appropriate dispatch. Error originated with our mutual friend, who believed that he could assist from afar. He has, I know, transmitted his apology, and I would add my own. You should not have been left alone, with neither mentor nor one of our own kind to assist you. Perhaps, the admiral said, his voice sounding to Tolly's ear harsher than previously. Perhaps our mutual friend expected me, a download, to die. He may have done so, Tokol said composedly. I do not know. It would not have been an unreasonable expectation. What I can say with certainty, knowing his mind as I do, is that he did not wish you to die. Now that you are here, how am I to live? Admiral Bunter asked, sounding tired now, Tolly thought, and he silently cursed himself. If they had wasted his reserves, he stepped forward, facing the monitor, Tokel had chosen to address, as if it were the admiral's face. 
That's where I come in, he said briskly. The first thing we're going to do is get you into a more stable environment. Another download? Doubt, very plain there. Admiral Bunter, Tolly thought, labored under no illusions, which could work for or against them. Best to be businesslike and nothing other than truthful. So, that's right, another download. A controlled download into an environment especially created to nurture a person like yourself. In the book, they're sustainable environments. Mentors call them craniums among ourselves, both a truth and a joke. Once you're moved into a cranium, settled in and secure, we'll do a proper installation in a well-maintained, clean and ship-shape vessel. Then we'll get you online. And after? After? Then comes the fun, and I mean that sincerely. You and me and Inky Rani Yo, we'll all go to school together. We'll teach you, and you'll teach us, and at the end of it, you'll have all you need to make good decisions for yourself and for the station, if you decide to stay here. If I decide, my purpose is to guard the station against pirates. Right, and you can still do that if you want to, and the station agrees. Captain Waitley shouldn't maybe have set that priority, but I'm guessing she really didn't know what she was doing. And her advisor, her advisor probably did expect you to fade out. He paused and added, I'm not saying there was any malice in it, understand, just inexperience and a good helping of desperation, if I'm reading their situation right. I understand, the Admiral said. It was necessary that there be someone to protect the station and save lives. The ships, my ships, were there to be used, and the download was expedient. Far as I can scan it, that's exactly how it went, Tolly said, giving the monitor a rueful grin. Now the first thing I gotta know is, do you agree to be moved into the cranium? Is there a choice? My environments are unstable. There's usually a choice. In this case, if you don't want to risk a move to the cranium, and it is a risk, there's a chance of failure. There's a chance the procedure might cause you pain. There's a chance of personality fragmentation. I'm not going to tell you there's no risk. I think it's an acceptable risk. But that's my estimation, as a professional who's performed this procedure several times. You might estimate different, and if you do, then I can do an orderly shutdown. Silence. Well, thought Tolly. It was a choice worth thinking about, after all. Life or death, Tokol murmured. It is the primary choice the mentor offers you. If I am damaged in this second download, what then, 
the admiral demanded. Then an orderly shutdown will be performed, Tokel told him, bluntly, before Tolly could give the same answer in softer words. How will this download be accomplished in good order when I am situated as I am? We'll set up a pipe, Tolly said, taking a step toward the monitor. Yoke all your comps together. I'll give you the transfer program and ask you to run it. The program will place you into a state of suspension. It will then initiate the download. I will be merged with the cranium, occupying an internal workspace from which I will monitor the transfer and manipulate it as and when necessary to ensure the best chance of success. More silence. Do I, Tolly asked, when he felt that the silence had stretched too long. Have your permission to transfer you to a more fitting environment. I will think about it, Admiral Bunter said abruptly. You and Tokol Lorlin will return to your ship. Now. When will you give the mentor your decision, Tokol asked. I must think and do research. Yes, of course. Please name a time when you will give us your decision regarding the transfer. I would suggest, as one who is concerned for your well-being, that there is some urgency to this matter. Your environments are deteriorating, as you are aware. This produces stress, which in turn produces exhaustion. I would further suggest that the transfer would best be undertaken while you are as strong as you can be. I will call. I will call Mentor Tolly Jones on Terrigan in 12 station hours. Leave me now. Sure thing. I'll be looking forward to talking to you again in 12 station hours. Tolly bowed toward the monitor and moved away toward the airlock and the tube over to the skiff. After a moment, he heard Tokel say, Until soon, and felt her presence at his elbow. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an existential chronometer nabbed from the bank of past and present tenses that's authentically justified twice a day and four times on Thursdays, plus kudos, plaudits, and praise for Tim Powers, author of Down and Out in Purgatory, The Collected Stories of Tim Powers. Please join us next time on the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 